Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan, except without Sam at the moment for a short while, to continue our look behind the curtain at the inner workings of Arrow. Uh, I am joined today by Kevin Lambert. Hi Kevin. Hello. Hey, uh, thank you for, for making time uh, to talk to me. I know it's astonishingly busy for at Arrow, as it should be. Um, do you want to tell everyone what you do, what your job title is and what that means? Yeah, so I am the head of catalogue over here at Arrow, which means I head up our acquisitions department for everything catalogue. So all those weird and wonderful gems of the past. It's largely, but not in whole, down to uh, my good self. That's very, very exciting. So are you, how... Um how involved are you in choosing the specific titles? How, how, what's that process? Talk me through what becomes an Arrow picture. It's, it is quite collaborative. I mean, obviously, there's those, those canon titles that everybody who likes the label or works for the label wants to see on, the, on, on Blu-ray. But it's a lot, of, a lot of hard work, a lot of digging through Excel spreadsheets most of the time, and a lot of research on where films, you know, where films are, who owns them. And just digging them out from obscurity, really. I mean, within the team, there's a few of us. So there's myself, uh, Ewan, who you've had on the the show before, um, and Fran, who's our director of content, and uh, Mike as well, who uh, who you know very well and you've had on the show again. All work very collaboratively on on what to acquire. Uh, Fran and Mike more so on the new release titles, and Ewan and myself more purely on catalogue. Ewan's incredibly good at digging up really obscure slasher films, which is fantastic because they're wonderful. Yeah, I'm going to try and talk to him at some point about the, the deep search for some of the more obscure stuff. Yeah, you find, um, you find Ewan living on Facebook a lot of the time, stalking people's relatives and, uh, and finding <laughs> them that way. <laughs> <laughs> that is both uh, fantastic and slightly morbid. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, Arrow has a, a huge... Um, like reputation as this uh, very um, very high end boutique film distribution label, mm-hmm. um, but in recent years we've seen an explosion of of other smaller labels sort of trying to muscle in on the action. Has that changed the process for trying to track these films down a bit? It's not changed the process per se. More just crowded the marketplace. So you need to you know choose your battles and you know we can't release everything. So having those other labels where we're looking at something and it's it's something maybe we want to do, but we know that from a financial perspective, it's not going to, it's not going to make masses of money, which I mean, at the end of the day, we are a, a business as well as being like massive film fans ourselves. So everything does need to turn a profit. So, you know, when you've got uh, other labels in the marketplace that are doing the same thing that we're doing, it, it makes you more, more reactive and, you know, just just picking those those titles that that we know we can make work, we know there's an audience for, and positioning them within the within the catalogue where we know they'll work. Sometimes you, you know you do lose out on something because another distributor might have a might have a higher offering on it, but it, it's it's just part of the game, unfortunately. I'm sure you've heard this or a version of this a million times, but uh, I'm uh, I'm in Toronto, as our listeners know, uh, filming at the moment. And uh, I was chatting to our director of photography, Karim Hussain, who's just an amazing uh, photographer. 
and I, uh, I was talking about the fact that I brought a fat wallet of, uh, of arrow discs so I can keep my watching up while I'm here. And the last thing I did before I left the house was transfer all these, um, these discs to an old-fashioned CD wallet like you might have in the car yep. in the 90s. I've also brought a UK Blu-ray player with me <laughs> to make sure that any of your region-exclusive titles could still be played. And we were talking about just films in general, and I mentioned that I've brought the entire, and this isn't an Arrow title, but I brought the entire Werner Herzog box set that Code Red put out mm-hmm. and, was, and was excited that it had got uh, Even Dwarfs Started Small on it as, uh, as one of the titles. Uh, and he misunderstood and thought that Arrow had released Even Dwarfs Started Small in the UK. And when he realised that uh, I was talking about the Code Red release, which he's seen, it being a North American release, he was disappointed. Uh, his words were, that's a shame. Arrow always give films the absolute best treatment. As a director of photography, he's, um, he considers Arrow sort of the benchmark for mastering. So We'll have to, uh, have to send him some freebies, get him, uh, get him on board and uh, get him being a champion online. Oh, that, yeah, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure he's a, ch- he's a champion anyway. Our, <laughs> but um, he's not going to turn his nose up at some freebies. <laughs> we, uh, we went to go and see um, Pet Cemetery together opening night. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, but he um, no spoilers. I haven't caught it yet. No, 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 no spoilers. But I definitely want to talk to you about it once you have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> but he uh, afterwards we went to this um, this incredible uh, physical media sale like shop in Toronto, which is amazing. It's like an old school video rental store, and they literally rent as well. And we went in, and it's they've got an enormous number of imported Arrow titles. And then, you know, all of the Criterion stuff and Vinegar Syndrome and Code Red and all that. And it was, it was like being back in the past, you know, being able to walk around and actually browse through the covers, looking at, looking at titles. It was really sweet. I and just, all of us sorry, there, the, produ- the producer of the film, Kareem, his primary camera operator and myself all left with like three, four discs each. <laughs> I did exactly the same when, uh, when I went to Japan a couple of years back. I was in a, in a record store there, walking around, and all of a sudden I sort of I noticed a bit of artwork that was familiar. Kind of looked at the shelf, and I'm like, that's an Arrow release. And then the more I walked around the Blu-ray section, the more and more I saw it. It was just like Arrow releases everywhere in the shop. Uh, Criterion's, Vinegar Syndrome discs. And I was just like walking around and being like, these guys are like really just like importing all of this stuff. And it must be, you know, it must work for them, so... Um, yeah. Ironically, I yeah, couldn't this, spot this. that many Japanese releases. So it was. Uh, <laughs> Presumably, is what you'd got in there for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was almost like a you know full sort of import store or you know a secondhand you know place that people can can swap stuff out like um, computer exchange in the UK. But um, but yeah, it was quite interesting. But your um, your wallet of of Blu-rays, I've got lots of them. They're not just for nineties. Uh, back seats of cars that's uh they're a good yeah, repo- I, I, good repository to get rid of all of the dvds without getting rid of them yeah i don't know i'm torn i'd, I'd still really like having that shelf and obviously my house is over full yes. <laughs> so maybe i need to make some drastic choices what i've started doing particularly when i've got a, a dvd i want to keep even though i've got the blu-ray because the um because it's got like a you know an audio commentary that isn't on the blu-ray or an extra feature or something is um, is I'll transfer the Blu-ray into a, a case that has an extra space in it. And you just put, so it, in then the, the, put uh, it in the tray. Then the disc, yeah, yeah, then it's like a special edition for me with an extra disc. <laughs> you should make little stickers and you can put them on the front, mate. Right? So limited edition, dual format. <laughs> <laughs> this 
this old version that's not as good but does have an amazing extra yeah i do like having the uh, the shelf as well but um unfortunately my flat probably can't take any more wall space or any more piles i think um yeah well that's it that's what karim was saying you know he's uh, he's started spreading out into the dining room in his in his apartment uh, oh mine's <laughs> that's starting to have walls put on shelves put on the walls <laughs> My, mine's everywhere hallway living room a pile yeah. in the bedroom just because i've got nowhere to put them it's just insane yeah it's a it's a, a dangerous space taking habit you, you know they're quite small things individually you'd think it would be uh easy but it's no yeah. ridiculous <laughs> yeah it's, it, it's quite funny when you visit like visits from friends that aren't into the you know home entertainment sort of collector's market yeah and they've got like seven dvds on their shelf and it's like where's your dvd collection and they're like oh it's there i'm like okay <laughs> yeah there's uh when people come around it's uh it's almost always the first thing they comment on is the, the ridiculous walls of discs um when you were uh, going back to the uh, the the, Arith, the acquisition thing, the podcast thing, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's fine. I, I'm not very good at staying on topic. I don't think anyone would expect otherwise. Um, plus, I've uh, I've had like four hours sleep after a fourteen and a half hour shoot day. Yeah, ha- we just had. Uh, you just got shocked with a two a.m. Um, well, it's. I mean, I should have kind of seen it coming, but we've so we've started off on splits, right. uh, and for our audience members that don't go on film sets splits means you start filming during the day and you finish filming during the night so it's not a it's not a night shoot per se but it means um it means it's split between night and day shoot um and we've done that because uh for a couple of reasons partly actor availability um which is always the primary concern when they schedule a film but partly because um some of our locations are these big grand public spaces so we're only allowed in them after they close so much like the Dawn of the Dead shopping mall was only available at night. So they had to sh- do that as a night shoot, even though it wasn't set at night. We've been shooting splits at this amazingly ostentatious hotel in Toronto. And uh, splits absolutely fucking ruin you. <laughs> the worst thing. <laughs> so I got here. I just about got my body clock onto Toronto time. And then we got thrown into splits. And then uh, yesterday was the last day at this location. So we had to get everything finished. So we, uh, we ended up going a bit long on the day. And then prosthetics are often last out because we've got to de-rig people and clean blood off stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we, we got out after about 14 and a half hours yesterday. But it was, a very, um, it was a very exciting shoot day. It was our second... It was, our, it was only our fourth day. Third day. Jesus, it was only our third day. <laughs> it blood? was the end of it. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we had um, we had prosthetics with bloodlines. We had puppets. Uh, we got through two gallons of blood yesterday. Fantastic! It is yeah. Being on set, so I'm doing this um, uh, thing with Kareem uh, Brandon Cronenberg, who did Antiviral, is directing, and uh, and like Peter Strickland on In Fabric, playing Giallo soundtracks ahead of takes. Uh, we had um, Rob Cottrell, the uh, the producer. Uh, playing the deep red theme <laughs> to get everyone in the mood before an effect yesterday. It's uh, deeply gratifying to be uh, to be on set with such like-minded people. Nice, nice. I don't remember where I was going with this. Um, uh, <coughs> yeah, we got back, we got sidetracked podcast <laughs> again. I think I got sidetracked from talking about how I sometimes get sidetracked. <laughs> <laughs> back, back to the acquisition thing. The reason the reason I'm here with you today. <laughs> oh God! Now you're having to leave me. I'm doing a terrible job. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
back to the, the, the basis of the podcast. So the reason you're here is Arrow have recently been dealing with some, some bigger titles. And by bigger titles, I mean um, sort of studio titles. Most recently, one that you were very involved in was Crimson Peaks. Absolutely. Which is, uh, there was a conversation on a recent podcast about what was, what's the, the biggest budget, Waterworld being the, probably the biggest budget uh, film Arrow have ever released. And someone asked, what was the second biggest budget? And I, I guess that Robocop was probably going to be the second. But actually thinking about it, Crimson Peaks is a big contender. So you've got some big, big titles coming into the catalogue now. We do, um, we do. Do you want to talk a l- little bit about that transition for Arrow? Um, yeah, I mean, it's... It's always kind of been there, you know, with the larger titles, you know, things like uh, Big Trouble in Little China and things like that. They've, you know, they've always been there in the, in the catalogue, but we're, we're starting to get more and more of them come through now. And obviously, Crimson Peak is one of those much bigger titles. It's also, for the age of the catalogue, when you look at, you know, the average release year of, of these titles, it's also extremely new. But um, it's quite an interesting interesting story behind the actual acquisition itself because um it was largely driven by guillermo himself so um one day sort of out of the blue we were copied in on an email from guillermo to um one of the high ups at universal saying i want arrow to release crimson peak wow so our first thought was like can we do pan's labyrinth as well (laughs) but um (laughs) (laughs) um but so we started talking um to universal about Crimson Peak and, you know, how we could do this. And we started getting further and further into the discussion and the deal and working out the actual deal terms themselves. And that was all in the UK. And at this point, you know, we're talking to Guillermo and he's like, oh, well, do the USA as well. And we were like, yeah, we we would do, but up until this point, we haven't been able to convince the studio to to license us anything for the US. So... For for us, Crimson Peak was our first... It wasn't the first one that was released, but it was the first one that was acquired for release in both the UK and the US. And that relationship has just continued to grow and grow. And you know now we can just talk to Universal. They instantly know that, that we want both territories. We don't just want the UK or we don't just want the US. So it really sort of paved the way for that relationship to, to blossom and to grow into what it is, what it is now. Um, That's awesome. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just such a great pat on the back for Guillermo to sort of turn around and say, well, I want these guys to do it. They know what they're doing. And, they, you know, they're going to give my film the, the the most amount of love and add all the extras and stuff in. Um, That's... So, yeah, it's like quite a quite a big step for a small studio like us. I say small, um, you know, small comparatively to people like Universal to be able to, you know, grow our range and into those larger titles and um also grow the territories as well i mean we launched in the us i think it was four years ago now um and it's you know it just keeps growing and growing which is fantastic and proves despite everyone's uh comments that physical media is still alive and people still do want to buy you know additions of something that they might have already had um yeah i mean with, with crimson peak obviously it's it, it's quite quite a, a short period of time to turn around to someone and say you know that blu-ray that you bought um was Crimson Peak 2015 <laughs> so blu-ray was probably like 2000 early 2016 or something you know that blu-ray you bought three years ago buy it again so it's it's good and a lot Did of you, love went into Crimson Peak you know it's not just kind of 
a disc in a plastic case. No, God, it's a gorgeous set. The uh, the case, the the artwork, the book is yeah, it's really nice. I mean, the artwork is um, amazing as well because it was um, by Guy Davies, who was actually the uh, designer on set of Crimson Peak. Okay, right then. That's yeah, it is absolutely astonishingly. So it's um, it, like it's it all very much problem. links into the actual crew that were involved in the production of the film. So yeah. Guy Davies, we approached to do the artwork for it. He came up with this whole concept just based across, you know, all of the themes of the films. For those of you listening that don't own a copy, by the way, Amazon.co.uk or Amazon.com are your source for this beautiful box set. And for Mike, who will probably kick my head in for saying that, arrowfilms.com is your source for this beautiful box set. But yeah, so it's, it brings in all the elements of the film. You know, you've got the crests and the butterflies and, um, and the ghosts... All across the release, and I mean, it, it just looks beautiful. Oh yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. And watching it again, it's. Uh, I think I, I think I liked it a lot more. The most recent watch, I. To be honest, I don't think I can say that's because of Harrow <laughs> that I enjoyed the film more. Um, <laughs> um, I think it's a film that that um, that definitely requires revisiting. Uh, it's no, you know, it's it's not a controversial opinion to say that Guillermo produces really sumptuous beautiful films but i think i um it, yeah like i i definitely think it's worth a revisit yeah i think it's um, maybe it the i rewatched it um, earlier this week and i think it's maybe the third possibly the fourth time i've seen it and like you say the sumptuousness and the attention to detail in his films is absolutely phenomenal yeah and i'm still picking up things that i didn't notice before because I, I rewatched it earlier this week and i noticed just a similarity to a, a another of Guillermo's films. There's a scene in, in Crimson Peak where Jessica Chastain is looking through a keyhole, sort of spying on Tom Hiddleston and his new wife. Um, and, yeah, th- that scene just reminded me... I was, I was sure I'd seen it in another GDT film, so I had a little look around and I was trying to remember what it was. And it um, turns out there's a scene uh, in Devil's Backbone, which I had obviously registered in my memory but missed previously where there's a ghost uh, looking through a keyhole. And the, the scene is almost set up exactly the same. But it's not just that. It's, yeah, it's, it's nice to see the web develop as a, as a director does more and more. Mm. That the, uh, it not just, it's not that they're, uh, that they're just doing the same thing, it's that there's this like, really delicate connection between all their work. And you, you see really that with nice. his characters as well. You know, often, um, well, m- most of the time, female leads in peril and it's you know in some kind of fairy tale dread that that he kind of weaves through his stories yeah that's i think fairy tale is a is a very appropriate word there uh he talked there's a line at the beginning of uh, crimson peaks when um when the leading character's book is turned down uh and they say the the person who's reading it says rather dismissively oh it's a ghost story she says it's not a ghost story it's a love it's a she had a love story with ghosts in it. Yeah. She just says it's a story, a story with ghosts in it. Yeah, um, and that's very much Del Toro sort of preempting a lot of people getting cross with Crimson Peaks for it not being enough of a horror film, despite having some pretty gruesome stuff in it. Oh, it's got some great um, gore, especially uh, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen the film, especially towards the, kitchen, the end the, of the, the film. Sink. Um, oh, the, the one at the end. That, okay, I'm going to spoil it for anyone that hasn't heard it, um, but. Uh, Right at the end, Tom Hiddleston gets a knife straight under the eye, and it's just, it's, it's almost 
wincy when you look at it but it's such a great such a great scene yeah the um the special effects artists uh, ddt have a great uh, have a great social media presence and i remember seeing the uh, the application process for that on their social media it's a um, it's a really beautifully um conceived rig yeah very nice yeah so what we normally do kev i'm assuming you uh, you listen to the normal podcast Contractually, you assume they correctly. Play it over a, we, we have a tannoy system in the office. We, we have <laughs> we, we have it pumped in, pumped into the uh, speaker system in the office as soon as it's recorded. It's obligatory that we listen to it and do nothing else. <laughs> so, as you know, uh, we uh, we tend to recommend films, uh, recommend extended watching based on the movie we've talked about. So, uh, so with Crimson Peak, do you want to do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first uh, with, uh, with one of our recommends? Uh, yeah, I'll go first. Um, yeah, go on then. What's your first choice? So my first choice is, and I'm guessing uh, some of our listeners would have already seen this and, and enjoyed it, um, Fall of the House of Usher. Nice. Tell us, uh, tell us about its connection to, uh, to Crimson Peak, in your opinion. The gothic romance link, you know, the gothic mystery and the set pieces and the scenarios, they're all extremely similar and very, very linked in the way that they play out. The use of colour as well, I think that, that Crimson Peak's very... The way that it sets the tone and, you know, you get a feeling from colours, very much the way I feel watching, watching Fall of House Fashion. Nice. A very good, uh, a good suggestion. Good recommend. I'm going to go down the Spanish cinema route with my recommendations. <laughs> um, the first is a, um, a sort of an underseen, sort of quite stylish Spanish uh, supernatural horror called the Valdemar Legacy or La Jarencia Valdemar. It came out back in 2010. It's sort of the first of two parts. I've actually not seen the second part yet, although I do have both of them um, on Spanish disc that I brought in. Uh, and it's a uh, it's a sort of very peculiar mix-up of different uh, literary inspirations. Um, a lot of Lovecraft in there, but it's a very stylish, very good-looking Spanish film. And yeah, it's uh, it's for some reason it didn't really didn't really get a, a look over here. Um, so I don't think a lot of people have seen it um, in England or America. But it's um, yeah, it's well worth tracking down, um, and it is available on disc from I think I probably got it on Amazon. But yeah, there's a good Spanish disc of it. Another Spanish one which springs to mind just now you've mentioned it is um, El Orfanato, which Guillermo produced, I believe. Which one's that one? What, uh, is there, what's the English title? Uh, on that? The Orphanage. Oh, yes, yeah, of course. Yeah, did Guillermo yeah. produce that? Uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a Guillermo del Toro Presents okay, situation. Yeah. So an, an executive producer slash championing. Yeah, but very much a similar kind of feel to, to Crimson Peak, you know, with the big, ornate house, lots of. Yeah, attention to detail in the set design and uh, and sort of tone yeah, of the it's film. Yeah, it's a v- very nice. I think it's one of the early uh, Del Toro using his power for good, like getting young filmmakers uh, an opportunity to to get their their stuff out there with a you know with a good crew, good design, good look, good budget. Yeah. I, I, to be honest, I think if you um, if you chop the last five minutes off that film and turn down the brightness a little bit, it might be one of my favourite Spanish films. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I find the ending a little sentimental. <laughs> Nobody likes no, a happy it's a, ending. It's a beautiful movie. What's that? Nobody likes a happy ending. I think Del Toro does. Yeah. Even is if you look at look at Pan's Labyrinth. You know, yeah. Pan's Labyrinth has the ultimate happy sad ending. It's uh, I'm trying to think of the, the the cinematic like legacy of that, but it's yeah, it's the uh, it's the, the bittersweet ending. Yeah, and he he really does like that. He likes the um, 
the life goes on even if life has literally stopped (laughs) (laughs) ending um what's your second recommendation uh my second recommendation is a masterpiece directed by the great alfred hitchcock uh called rebecca so rebecca in many ways is again very similar in its uh in its story and themes to uh to crimson peak doesn't result with Tom Hiddleston getting a knife shoved through his face, but the story's very much the same. A wife tormented by, not literal spirits, but the spirits of her husband's previous wife. So in a very similar way to Crimson Peak, you know, you have the, the, the ghosts of the past, as it were, haunting our lead. Yeah, a, a fantastic recommendation. And an interesting segue into something I sort of thought we might talk about earlier and then I forgot about, which is the the ongoing conversation about remakes. Arrow recently posted on social media a question about the value of remakes. Mm. And um, I was very pleased to see that the, the social media response was very much in line with my feelings. But one of the things that used to be how I felt about remakes was that even if the remake itself wasn't great, it would often shine a light on properties that would then get a re-release because of the attention brought by the remake. Um, And often that meant that uh, titles that maybe were outside of the reach um, of boutique distribution companies because they were catalogued for a a big studio, like, say, Universal, would then get a re-release. But it does seem now that that's going to be maybe more possible than ever because those companies can turn to someone like Arrow with these relationships developing. And, and these old films will really get the really get the star treatment. Obviously, I'm quite excited about the, the remake of um, Rebecca because it's um, it's Ben Wheatley. Yeah. But how how do you feel about that? Are you uh, are you a, an original purist? And you know, with obviously the exception of the thing, can't stand remakes. Yes and no. Just trying to think of yeah. I mean, Rob Zombie should have probably left Halloween alone. But you know, they. they... Oh, you're... You're lucky Sam's not here. He'd be livid. Sam loves, <laughs> loves Rob Zombie's Halloween. <laughs> I, I, I love Rob Zombie. I mean, I love like his music and I love most of his films. I just, I, you know, I just thought, you know, does Halloween need, does it need a remake? No. Yeah, it's not, it's not terrible. But yeah, I, I prefer the originals. You get some come along from time to time that are really good. We can't talk about it because I ask for no spoilers, but Pet Cemetery um, had high hopes, I think, for everyone. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, Pet Cemetery. I got excited about when I found out that it was being shot by Laurie, uh, a, a Ben alum, Ben Wheatley alum, yeah, yeah. who uh, who shot uh, Overlord last year, which I was a very big fan of, or shot m- some of Overlord, most of Overlord last year. Pet Cemetery looks really nice. No spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it, it 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 treads uh, it treads an interesting line with a remake. I think the the problem with remakes is if if they're not different enough then everything, every little thing that they do change, you think, why are they changing that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make, stop, stop, stop ruining it. And then everything they do the same, you're like, well, what's the point of this? <laughs> so they really, I, I think you really do have to go off in a quite a savagely different direction for them to be um, super successful. I was talking to a producer the other day and I can't say what film it is or what studio or who the producer is because it's not a signed deal yet. He's talking to a studio about, a major studio, about uh, remaking a film which he made in the 80s. And they want to make three, uh, I think he said three films at a $100 million budget each. And Jesus. This, this, this film doesn't need $300 million films. 
Uh, oh my god! Well, when we're off mic, I'm definitely going to be asking you what that is. <laughs> it, it, it's on Arrow Blu-ray, but um, yeah, wow. it's a bit of a weird one. A, a three hundred million dollar trilogy remake franchise yeah. of a title on Arrow already. Yeah. Well, it's obviously Horrors of the Malformed Men. Absolutely, yes. That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, actually, no. It can't be that because you said it wasn't worth remaking for 300 million and i would 100 percent be behind someone wasting 300 million because it w- wouldn't be a waste in my eyes but there's no way they'd recoup <laughs> <laughs> right my second recommendation is a uh, a not quite horror film from spanish uh, occasional horror uh, director Alex de la Iglesia, who I think I've recommended a film of his before on the podcast. But this is The Last Circus, although the original Spanish title was The Ballad of the Sad Trumpet. There's a very nice Blu-ray out there. I think my Blu-ray is the Spanish one, uh, but it might be an American one. But it's definitely floating around. Checking uh, checking the date of it, uh, it's another 2010, on IMDb, uh, it says it's on disc at Amazon. So uh, I assume you can get it in the UK relatively easily as well. But it's a, another super, super sumptuous, very emotionally charged Spanish genre picture. It's less less horror than Crimson Peaks, although it definitely has some horrible stuff in it, including uh, clowns going to war. <laughs> uh, and some pretty nasty self-mutilation by clowns. There's a lot of clowns in it. A lot it's of clowns. About, it's about clowns. Uh, it's, yeah, it's fantastic um, and, and very worth watching. But, but not, again, like Crimson Peaks, if you go into it expecting a, like a, just a normal horror movie, you might be a little disappointed. But if you go into it expecting something that's more lyrical, a bit weirder and very, very beautiful, then, uh, then I think it's going to tick those boxes. I think that's one of the beautiful things about Crimson Peak is that, you, you know, you don't need, well, there's monsters in it, but you don't need, you know, a monster chasing you down a hallway or, like, you know, tons of gore there's there's enough of that which with the tension that the house itself provides i think yeah. it, you know it is it, yes it is a you know it is a romance film as well but i think it is very very much a horror film yeah it, it's about a building atmosphere rather than yeah it's not a slasher basically yeah it's a, it's a mood piece although one could argue it does have slasher tropes at the very end final girl situation yeah is is that uh should we, should we call it a slasher? Should we give you in a call and see what he thinks? Yeah, uh, you need to do another Blu-ray release. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's exactly the same, but you just use the word slasher a lot more in the book. Yeah. Uh, let's let's move on. The next thing we do, Kev, as you know, is uh, recommendations uh, based on things we've watched in the last couple of weeks. So, uh, you it's your turn. You go first. What, what have you seen recently you want to recommend to our, our listenership? Well, or, or even just talk about? Yeah, I mean, I've got one new film and one old film. So, let's do the new ones Same first. Here. That's good. Um, yeah, do the new one. So, a bit late to the game, but I finally caught Us the other day. Ah, how do you feel about Us? Mm, how do I feel about Us? <laughs> I, I'm still not quite sure. I, I think I need to I'm see it. That. I think I need to see it again. I mean, I went into it having seen the trailer and been like, "Wow, this is going to be an amazing horror film," and I just kind of felt a little bit let down by it. I wanted, I wanted to jump. I wanted, uh, I wanted the film to do do to me what the trailer did, but um, didn't quite push all my buttons. See, I'd uh, I deliberately not watched the trailer 
because when I know I want to watch a film, I tend to like to watch the trailer after I've seen it mm. and see how they marketed it rather than risk knowing anything about it. Uh, although, just to go back to something we were talking about before, someone, and I can't remember who it was, but they're definitely a bastard, told me about one, the, the first big deviation from the Mary Lambert Pet Cemetery. Right. Which was infuriating, because <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, that, if they said it didn't matter, then it's probably in the first five minutes and the, the running order's changed. Nope. No, no, I went for two acts before knowing what was going to happen. It annoyed the, sh- the shit out of me. <laughs> Post-credit sequence, and you're like, ah! Oh, God damn it! Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, with us, I, I thought the first act of us was absolutely spectacular. And it like the, the, the sort of portents and mood of the first act, that rising feeling of dread, yeah. was some of the best of that I've ever seen. Just absolutely spectacular. And then it, again, don't want to do too many spoilers because it's still relatively fresh, even though it's been out for a little while, especially by the time this podcast goes up. But I feel that it um, it, it, it goes a bit wide with the world. Yeah. That's always a big problem. It's a very It's a very personal film, especially in the first act. And then it just kind of extends its reach a bit much. Yeah. I um, I don't know whether it was an intentional, I know what's going to happen, but... You're it, talking about the, the built-in spoiler at the very beginning. Yeah. I was just like, Yeah, uh, what okay. the fuck? Yeah, so I just... So, again, kind of let me without, down any, without any spoilers, yeah, there's a... You know, one of the things everyone loved about Get Out was going back and watching it again and being like, oh, fucking hell, yeah, of course, that meant that. Yeah. And, oh, look, that, that, that was on the wall there or that was there. That, that was a massive b- foreshadowing, but like a sneaky one, like a non-narrative foreshadowing. Yeah. And I think uh, that was... That, that They tried to do that again with this one and they just went a bit on the nose with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, without, again, without saying what it is... <laughs> There's a, a reference of sorts to another film, and if you're familiar with that film, it kind of spoils the end of the film for you, uh, or spoils the the, the, third, the beginning of the third act for you, like spoils a reveal, which is a bit of a bit of a shame. But reading interviews uh, with Peel, that the reason for the inclusion of it isn't just a, a fun foreshadowing, but it's that that movie was directed by the father of his first girlfriend. Oh really? Yeah. So it's like uh, obviously he's he's had that film rattling around in his head for ages. Yeah. I think it's like it's it's a bit like the it's a bit like the second series of the of the Flight of the Concords. Bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> They'd spent so long like perfecting all the songs that are in the first series that it was a polished gem of a of a comedy you know of a sitcom of a musical sitcom and then they're like do another one and they're like oh fuck okay well we've got to write an entire series worth of songs in a year rather than spending years touring them and practicing them and tweaking them based on audience reaction and workshopping them. And I think that Get Out, I mean, I, you know, I don't know, maybe he had, um, maybe he had us in his back pocket for ages and Get Out was a, was one of those ones that was born out of a panicked elevator pitch. But <laughs> the way it feels is that the Get Out was something that he had on the boil for a very long time. Yeah. And as a result had been very beautifully like refined and simmered down to its core, like, core effective moments uh, and us just felt a bit like what do I do next I'll do this I also didn't get the rabbits I was trying to work out what the metaphor was and you know I was talking to people in the office and uh, someone said oh they'd read that Jordan Peele had just said he's scared of rabbits so he put them in the film <laughs> <laughs> I mean my my feeling is just that they're um they're quite self-sustaining because they 
propagate quite well. That was what so someone it's else said. Logical. That always be me. Thing. Yeah, it's always be me. But I like to think that it's a reference to El Topo. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure a lot less rabbits and, got uh, killed on the set of us than they did on El Topo. <laughs> yeah, especially at the actual hands of the director. <laughs> just imagine Jordan Peele just massacring rabbits. Oh, my God. Just locking eyes with the crew as he murders his animals. Uh, talking, of, <laughs> talking of which, when's your... Um, you're, you're doing a Jodo box set, aren't you? We are. Is that in the... Am I, is that allowed? Am it, I allowed to mention that? Is that I can't in, remember whether I know that publicly. <laughs> I think it's in the public, uh, public sphere of information. Uh, yes, we are doing the Del Topo box set very shortly. Um, just signed off on the restorations with Jodorowsky himself. Uh, he's just reviewed all oh, three of them wow. in Paris. So brand new 4K restorations of Holy Mountain, El Topo and Fando Liz. Oh my it's, God, that's fucking great. It's going to be a beautiful box set and the restorations look absolutely phenomenal. Um, Are you allowed to share anything with us about extras you've managed to track down, like old stuff? Um, so there there's a lot of archival before? stuff, um, which was featured on the uh, previous Blu-ray release, which was released by um, Abco, the rights holder. And they're also, for those of you that aren't familiar with them, they're also a big record publisher. Um, yeah, yeah. Do a lot of Beatles and Rolling Stone stuff in the US. Check them out. They do some really cool box sets um, of uh, vinyl and stuff, if you're into that kind of thing. So, yeah, all of, a, all of that's transitioning. Sorry. Some new stuff, a brand new interview with uh, Alejandro, lots of members of the cast and crew, so it's going to be a stacked one. Have you locked in all the extras yet? They're like 80% locked in. I really want you to get some Fernando Arabal action in there. Obviously, he co-wrote Fando and Liss with... Uh with Yudorovsky and I'd really really like uh, I'd really like him to be more publicly known is he still um, alive he's quite old I'm... isn't he yeah I think he's still alive though I mean god maybe he's not that's awful <laughs> I'm going to look it up now while it, we're, while I, we're talking just... yeah no he's still alive yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> hooray right get Fernando Arabal in on the action get him to talk about the, the stage play version of Fando and Liss and doing that with, uh, with Jodorowsky he's a, he's a good interview as well the, uh, the American box set of th- uh, there's a couple of box sets of his stuff out in the States but there's one that has um, Guernica Tree Vive la Muerte and I Will Walk Like a Crazy Horse which is the first one of his that I saw and is a, a genuine masterpiece uh, and that's got some fantastic interviews with him on, uh, in one of which he gets in a fight with a chair in it <laughs> gets in a fight with a chair that's a that's, yeah. a that's a fight scene yeah it's amazing do you reckon the, uh, do you reckon the chair had a stunt double I, I don't know I don't know I think um, there's a there's a there's a weird thing about chairs and interviews I think Lawrence Harvey for his audition for Human Centipede 2 walked in not knowing what was going to happen and uh, his instruction from Tom was to have sex with the chair yeah <laughs> That's uh, having worked on the release at my uh, previous place of employment. I can tell you that that is very much true. (laughs) There are some (laughs) some funny human centipede stories that that I could tell you. Well, we'll we'll have to share them one day. Maybe we'll do a centipede special. (laughs) I can do the I can do the on set stuff, and you can do the uh, (laughs) you can do the the distro stuff. Yeah, yeah. So So, um, there's some um, on the. uh, I'm not sure if they ever made it actually to the UK blu-ray because they're pretty graphic but there's some pretty funny deleted scenes that came out of number (laughs) number two and number three but yeah that was such a censorship nightmare that damn film do you think that's ever gonna ever gonna see the light of day and uncut number two in the uk well the blu-ray i've got is uncut 
Well, the Blu-ray I've got is uncut. <laughs> but I've just got the American one. <laughs> yeah, I just. I, have I, you got? A, have you got an uncut master of a of a British Blu-ray that never got released? Uh, no, no, it's just a BDR of the master. Oh, nice. So, make, nice, made sure I did that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not not that it's a multi uncut. multi rewatch type of film, but <laughs> I I kind of think it is. Like I, you know, in the same way that I I feel compelled to go back to Salo. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's an, a much more important film than maybe anyone realised. <laughs> <laughs> it, it will be in years to come. I mean, it'll be that you know, as is as was uh, like passing around bootlegged copies of Salo back when we were at school. I'm sure Centipede yeah. is going to be. Well, it is massively. You know, bootlegged in the in the new era of bootlegging, where everything just gets uploaded to torrent sites. Yeah, that's it. Like when I um when I talk to students, I, you know, teaching in the UK, one of the frequent questions I get is, what what are the most extreme horror films? What's your list of most extreme horror films? Uh, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but so I now just have it saved <laughs> on my phone, <laughs> and so with with caution, you know, it comes with a lot of caveats. And I've uh, and I've written down sort of like why it's extreme and whether or not I think it's worth watching as well. So I've done like a little spreadsheet. I love a spreadsheet. <laughs> but yeah, obviously Centipede Two is on there. It's uh, yeah, it's really a, a, a touchstone of horror. Yeah. Uh, but like horror in the, the the raw actual sense rather than just as a film. It's fucking horrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is so grim, and the the choice to shoot it in black and white just really. You know, it adds to it so much. Have you seen the colour release? Because they released a colour version in the States, didn't they? Oh, they did, didn't they? Yeah. No, I've not seen it. I've not not seen it. I've not seen it. Because we didn't know it was going to be black and white when we filmed it. That was sprung on us. (laughs) Oh, really? So just uh, just at the end, all your your hard work making Lawrence's prosthetic barbed wire covered penises were... (laughs) You you could have just made them in like, you know, white rather than full colour. Marzipan. (laughs) <laughs> there's more to that than uh, that i could say on the on the podcast <laughs> yeah no it was it was interesting because obviously not long after that i was doing um uh, field in england and field in england we knew was going to be black and white and it was interesting having watched how our work translated into black and white when we weren't expecting it mm. that informed a lot of the choices we made on field i mean it certainly works yeah i think it really does sam and i were talking about like later releases in black and white when directors release a mainstream film and then say but i always wanted it to be black and white here's the black and white version you know things like fury road and logan and uh, and the mist i think is the most successful version yeah. which uh, which really only exists in my heart in black and white do you, do you recall if you yeah. shot in black and white or whether it's just desaturated in post i guess if there's a color version you must have just desaturate it so I don't think there is such a thing as shooting in black and white on digital. Oh, yeah, that's like, a good point. That's not, not really a thing. Like, in film, you have to make a choice between stops, stops but yeah. in, in digital, you just light it and look at it in black and white on the monitor, but all the colour information is still going into the camera. Yeah. Anyway. Um, where had we got with our recommendations? You had just recommended us, or we'd talked about us. Yeah, I had sort of recommended us. I, th- I think us is yeah. definitely a recommendation. It's definitely worth a watch. Yeah, I mean, I think for no, if for no other reason, and I think there are other reasons, but if for no other reason than just we need to fucking support the production of horror. Absolutely. <laughs> go and see us. What, if you can still watch it at cinema, if there is a, a, a still a screening of it going on around you somewhere, go and watch us. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it, the other thing is, it's actually pretty good. We're just holding it to a very high standard because of the director's last film. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's great. It's, such a, it's a, a, a totally watchable film. And to me, yeah. it, it didn't feel like, you know, it didn't feel like a two-hour film. 
it's you know felt very no, snappy. It, kind of, it didn't drag kind of and, and there's you know there's there's a lot there. But I just wanted more from it because I'm greedy. <laughs> in exactly the same way that you also want Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your first thought is give me more. Yeah, it's by no means a bad film. It's a it's a good movie. It's just you know. I, I think like Crimson Peaks, it's going to benefit from a second watch when you know a little bit more about what it's going to be. When your expectations are more in line, it's going to work better. It, like you know, like all the people that complained about Crimson Peaks not being a horror horror. Yeah, I think the the going myself sort of included, and going back to it and knowing what's coming makes it a much more sort of like enjoyable watch. I think Us is going to fall into that category. Yeah. My first recommendation. So you said you got one old and one new. Mm. Uh, and you went with the new first. My, I'm going to do the other way around. I also have one of on you. My first recommendation is from 1987. I'd never seen it before. It was a, uh, a blind buy at this uh, Toronto video store. It's a DVD. It's the only DVD I bought. The others are all Blu-rays, the discs. It's called Twilight of the Cockroaches. Do you know about that? I don't know. <laughs> it sounds amazing, though. It's, it's really good. Japanese film directed by uh, Hirokai Yoshida. It's a mix of live action and stop motion animation. Came out not that far away from when Roger Rabbit came out. So part of me thinks that maybe it was a, a cash in. <laughs> but uh, but goddamn, it's totally different. Uh, it's essentially about a, a community of anthropomorphized cockroaches living in a Japanese apartment with a squalid man who doesn't uh, who doesn't like mind that they turn up and eat his. It's- the leftover food on his dishes is this the japanese remake of joe's apartment then it's well it is so it does have a lot of joe's apartment vibes to it except it's also very much about japanese guilt over world war ii okay so (laughs) there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of talking about the before times like before this guy was in the apartment then there was a family there and they uh and they used bug spray on the cockroaches and it's depicted like a fucking atomic blast like it's pretty grueling stuff but there's all this like self-hatred in the cockroach community like they're like but you know we had it coming we didn't know our place we were we were we were in the wrong and so they were justified in in wiping us out with these terrifying weapons the like of which no one had ever seen and then there's a core like like right-wing contingent in the cockroach community saying, no, we were wronged, we need to stand up, we can take these people down, no cockroach has ever killed a human. You know, we were in the wrong. And then it's got the most amazing ending, like the last the last 30 seconds of it, are just fucking astonishing. <laughs> um, I need to see a tiny this bit in the middle. Oh man, it's, it's absolutely great. It's out on DVD in the, uh, Canada and the States, uh, Discotech with a K, releasing put it out in the states uh it's like a slipcover dvd very bare bones no extras or anything madhouse the animation studio behind one punch man um and for whom kasuhita ishii a, a personal favorite works the guys that did the animated sequence in kill bill all that kind yeah, of stuff yeah. um they're, they're they're the animation house who did the early stuff and although it's not as technically impressive as roger rabbit by any means there is some incredibly impressive stuff because there's a lot the, the humans all move in slow motion to sort of time up with the cock, how the cockroaches see them ah. and as a result you've got loads of like slow motion like footfalls and rolled up newspapers smashing real world environments as they're like striking out of the cockroaches and the cockroaches are animated like scuttling around and and but they've all got human faces these cockroaches it's very weird this sounds amazing i'm gonna yeah, order this great. as soon as uh, as soon as we finish recording <laughs> It's super heartbreaking. <laughs> I love it. Love a bit of misery. What's your old film that you've seen recently? My old film is 
so bad it is good. Um, it's a film called White Fire. Oh, I don't know this one. You, you don't know? It? It's a French production. The French title is uh, Vivre pour Survivre. It's directed by a guy called Jean-Marie Palladi. Okay. Who, uh, most of his other work is erotica, softcore. So uh, it was quite a, a different film for him to make. But the storyline here is like, it's just so good. It's just so amazing. It's it's about a, a brother and sister who team up. Their mother and father get shot in the you know in opening opening credits. They're they're running away from these people. They're saved by this American guy, and they go and she gets a, a job in a diamond mine, and they're, they're stealing diamonds. And then they find the white fire, this huge diamond that has the power to like zap people and. and, and burn people's faces off and stuff it's absolutely brilliant it's so oh, wow okay. it's so hammy and because i've been doing it the whole podcast i'm going to do it again and drop a massive spoiler there's a scene in the middle where uh this guy's sister dies and they need to get someone else in the mine so they recruit this other woman who has a face transplant to look like her sister uh look like his sister sorry <laughs> uh, okay. and um and yeah, and then they bump uglies a little bit later on in the film. So um, <laughs> I, technically, it's it's was pointed out to me that it's not incest, but was was pretty close to it. That's fucking but, mad. But there's so much in there. There's like chainsaw fights. Like it's it's just absolutely brilliant. So um, you're 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 literally hitting all my buzzwords. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, it's great. Fred Williamson as well. What's not to like? Um, oh my god! Yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. Robert Ginty, um, the the mutilator himself, is the lead. Yeah, it, yeah. It's yeah, it's fantastic. How uh, how can we see it? Is it uh, is this one you got to see because it was on your radar as an acquisition, or is it uh, something that's out there? Out yeah, to buy? It, it's it's been re- it's just recently been restored by a French company. You can get it on DVD from either I think either uh, Amazon in the US or Amazon UK. Both have English friendly versions. But yeah, it's just been just been uh, restored, and I think just DVD though. Uh, I think it's coming to French Blu-ray this year. But yeah, they're, very, one, uh, they're notoriously stingy with their subtitling. Yeah, <laughs> the French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, if they include both audio tracks, because it's quite interesting, you know, like a lot of Italian films Actually, yeah, were released with French there, tracks and both, subtitles yeah. and English language tracks. So there isn't, you know, a definitive "it's meant to be a French" or "it's meant to be an English" kind of answer to it. So if the French do include the English track, then obviously that'll be. Uh, be one way to see it but um but yeah it is, that it is one that i'm uh, one that i'm watching closely should we say i am 100 percent just just as you're gonna get yourself <laughs> twilight of the cockroaches i'm gonna get myself white fire um do i should i search under the english title the uh or the french title if uh, i want to track it down now uh i think wait. on amazon it's under the english title okay that sounds amazing is it post indiana jones like is have we uh, We've got a, an Ark of the Covenant thing going on with the diamond. Uh, 1985. Okay, all right. Oh, man, that sounds amazing. I'm very excited. I feel like I have uh, I should have gone with my uh, my new one first as well because uh, it's a little disappointing. I've uh, Being here and working as I am, uh, I think we worked out that yesterday was my 22nd consecutive work day if you include flying to Canada as a work day. <laughs> Non-stop. Um, yeah, nonstop. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm obviously a little tired, and I'm finding I'm struggling to get through films when I get back at like three, four in the morning. 
although I've, uh, I've managed to sneak a couple in in the morning while I was acclimatising to the time zone. So, you know, I'd still wake up early. So I was, uh, I was watching films in the morning as my stupid body acclimatises to the stupid time zone. <laughs> so I'd just be forced awake and then sit there with nothing to do for a few hours before going to set. So I have been putting things in. But most of the films I watched, I watched on the flight <laughs> over here. So I've seen some, some new things I've missed out on. Uh, and I remember hearing um, about the one I'm going to talk about on uh, on one of the one of the film collecting subreddits and everyone was sort of getting excited about it but I'd not heard about it at all and I don't know if it's just that it's not come out in the UK yet uh, or if it came and went or if no one cares about it in the UK but have you seen Bad Times at the El Royale? I haven't, no. I so, wanted to go and see it and it was playing in my local cinema and for, uh, why did we not go and see it? Is it like really long? Is it like two hours and 20 minutes long or something? don't think it's that long i'm pretty sure the reason we didn't go and see it is because it is 142 minutes it it was one of those times where i was having a moan about why can't films just be 90 minutes long and that's the law can people stop having fights to see who can make the longest film (laughs) i I rant about this quite frequently a regular a regular topic do you not do you not like a nice long film sometimes i just i just found as of late with with new films it just seems to be like Okay, yeah, we need to make a two-hour film now, and you know that's the. Yeah, the, I do feel I do feel 120 minutes has taken over from the 90-minute standard. Yeah, it has. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's but I, I don't feel that they necessarily need to be that long. You know, when I actually see them, I'm like yeah, you could have chopped a bit here, chopped a bit there, dropped it down by 10 minutes maybe overall. Yeah, I think what knowing editors and having you know you, you've done a bit of editing yourself the, yeah. the last stage is to see how much superfluous stuff you can trim out to tighten it up as much as possible yeah and that step seems to be missed a lot of the time these days yeah but no i, I think bad times at el royale actually kind of zips by as you were saying about us doesn't feel like a two-hour film uh, bad times at el royale didn't either i i really enjoyed it i mean it's not it's not a five-star movie there's some there's some pretty serious problems with it but it's ultimately really really enjoyable the cast Really, um, really sort of elevate it. And it's a really fun sort of, you know, neo-noir. Do you remember Identity? Mm. That sort of like Tempest-inspired serial killer at a motel movie. It's got, it's got hints of identity in it as well. Yeah, it's, I mean, not none of the serial killer stuff, but just the setting. It feels very, very much like it. it and it's a fractured timeline, which I like. It's very stylish. I really liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, so, yeah, if, if, if you... Like most people in the UK didn't go and see Bad Times at El Royale, possibly because it was way too long. Yeah, it's, it's a good good Sunday afternoon watch, I'd say. Nice. And when you're trapped in a metal can flying over the Atlantic, then it, you've got no choice, really. Just two hours. Well, you say that, but I, I really make sure I have choices. I have two separate iPads, one loaded up with like sort of genre fare like sort of horror, thriller, old TV stuff, that kind of thing. And one just loaded up with Shaw Brothers films <laughs> that, that I always fly with, <laughs> just, just in case. And I didn't have to, uh, didn't have to bust them out at all. I watched, uh, I watched quite a lot of stuff on the plane, actually. I, I, um, I watched Widows. I caught that. That's really good. A yep. little bit maudlin. I think if it hadn't been directed by such a serious chops director, it would have been garbage. <laughs> but it was, uh, ultimately, it was quite good. Uh, and then I, oh, and I, I caught a, I started, but then couldn't finish because we ran out of flight time. I started Triple Frontier because I downloaded that to my um, Netflix thing on my iPad as well before we left. That's so brilliant. I that, da- that the next morning. That ability to download to your iPad now, like yeah, Netflix taking over the world. Yeah, it's very very smart of them. Oh, talking of 
streaming, obviously, uh, as at the time of recording, we've uh, we've just had um, the announcement that Criterion streaming has gone live now. It has indeed. I think they, is, they went live. Um, I think it was like the beginning of this week, or it might have been yeah, tail end so. of last week, maybe. I, uh, I immediately emailed them and said, "Am I going to be able to watch this in the UK?" And they immediately uh, and they emailed said, back saying no. <laughs> yeah, immediately emailed back saying no. But if you try and sign up from the UK, they will register it as a point of interest and that will be catalogued in a metric they're putting together as to whether or not it's financially viable to run it in the UK. Um, we're going to probably have to cut this off because we've gone over an hour plus ed- minus edits and uh, we're meant to be doing these things a little trim now. But it's been absolutely lovely talking to you, Kev. Yeah, always a pleasure, mate. Thank you so much. I know that there's some, some big things on the horizon. There um, are some maybe when some very big things on the horizon. So um, I'm 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 super excited and sad we can't talk about them yet. But maybe in the future we could do a, a podcast sneak preview. Yeah. Like if you're allowed to like when you are allowed to talk about these things, maybe we could hold one back for a for a podcast announce and then announce it the same day but like an hour or two later. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm sure how, we could do that. How important the podcast is considered in your, um, in your marketing plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we can do that. I mean, the, the podcast is, is edited right next to the, uh, right next to Lou, who does all our social announcements and stuff. So um, I'm sure Mike can just, you know, upload that and then get going with the announcements on social as we normally do. But, nice. uh, but yeah, I'm nice. sure that, I'm sure we can do that. All right, well, there you go, listener. Listen out for that. Thank you so much. Um, obviously, Sam, you're missed. We hope you're back with us soon. Until then, I'll keep talking to the lovely people at Arrow about quite how they do what they do and then just getting sidetracked and wittering about film because ultimately that's why we're all here. But again, thank you, Kev, for joining us. I will continue to try to uh, bring some semblance of professionality in the memory of Sam. I'll keep the, keep the lab light burning. I'm not sure how well I'm doing. <laughs> thank you so much. Join us next time. See ya. Bye.